You get the point that paper money does not hold its value. I was amazed to find that Ronnie Montrose actually made a song about this and that uh, it's true. Paper money rarely holds its value. Why? Because in the hands of the Jews, nothing holds its value. And throughout history, the Jews have, especially the Rothschilds and their banker friends, have contrived to steal our money, to steal and exchange our real money, that is gold and silver, because a U.S. dollar is defined as 371.25 grains of silver. It's a weight. It's not a value. It's a weight. And all value is supposed to be relate to that uh, weight of silver. Okay? And, of course, our government, thanks to the Federal Reserve Bank, has totally abandoned that principle of uh, making money a weight of silver, okay, or a weight of gold. So, folks, it's it's time for Restoration Hour. Pastor Eli James here. Today is January 27, 2024. And we're going to do another episode of Monetary Crimes. 
by Alexander Del Mar. And, of course, the full title of the book is Barbara Villiers. Barbara Villiers, History of Monetary Crimes. And because Barbara Villiers is a prostitute, was a prostitute, but there's many more, <laughs> many more prostitutes who have come and gone since her, who have been employed by banksters to blackmail heads of state and thereby establish their, their, their monopoly on money throughout planet Earth. Okay? So that's why it's called Mystery Babylon, the great whore of the book of Revelation. And, of course, your Judeo-Christian pastor is utterly clueless about what the great whore really is and who Mystery Babylon is and the Jews behind it. Okay, folks? So that's where we're at. The uh, Judeo-Christian world is so utterly clueless. It's pathetic. It's really pathetic that these people do not know what's going on in the world and how and how we have been flummoxed by the international Jew and the international Jew is controlling us through the value issuance of money and controlling the value thereof which is supposed to be the duty of government as Alexander Del Mar explained to us in the first two chapters of his book, Barbara Villiers, The History of Monetary Crimes. And I know this is dry reading because he really talks, the first two chapters were about the silver trade and to some extent the gold trade and how gold and silver have been manipulated throughout history by governments. But nevertheless, they are the true source of value because paper money, as the song says, paper money don't hold, it does not hold its value and there's nothing you can do about that, especially if it's in the hands of the perfidious Jew, because they want you to have paper money. They're going to do everything in their power to get your gold and give you paper notes in the place. Because why? Because they can't inflate gold and silver. They can only inflate paper money or digital money. And that a central bank digital currency, <laughs> which is uh, digital money also. And so that's what they're trying to do in the world today. They're trying to replace gold and silver with digital money. They've already succeeded in replacing gold and silver with paper money. That is fiat money that has no value whatsoever. Okay, True money has intrinsic value. And that's why gold and silver have always been true money. And that's why those two commodities are biblical money. And our patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, had plenty of gold and silver in addition to other sources of wealth. And if we can maintain a true gold standard and or a true silver standard without the Jews getting their filthy, grubby hands on our gold and giving us paper in its place, then we will have a fair and equitable system of weights and measures which inflation is not inflation is a distortion of the honest weights and measures provision in the bible okay so let's continue now with chapter three and when we get into the story of barbara villiers i forget which chapter she uh, comes in but you will get the idea 
that oh yeah paper money and you know banknotes are simply ways of the banksters taking away our wealth which is gold and silver and other commodities in exchange for inflatable paper money which means that the value of that paper money it decreases over time but yet because the banksters issue that paper money by simply pulling it off the printing press whenever they please or putting it into circulation off their digital <laughs> their digital printing press so to speak that they simply can issue the money and buy stuff at its current value at whatever is accepted as the current currency. And after a while, it usually takes about a year. Yeah, let's say uh, the value of uh, a chicken. You go to a, a Mexican <laughs> butcher, butcher shop and they have live chickens and they say, I want a chicken. So they go in there, chop the head off the chicken, and I guess you could pay them to de- defeather it. Or you can do that yourself. And then let's say this year it's 10 bucks for a chicken. But the banksters double the money supply in a year. So when you come back next year for to buy the same chicken, it costs 20 bucks. Why? Because they have doubled the currency supply. They can't do that with gold and silver. They can only do that with paper money, digital currency, and any any form of fiat money. So let's go to Chapter 3, the coining, mill, and press. The quantity of silver produced by the mines of Potosi. Potosi is in Brazil, and during the uh, height of the Spanish uh, dominance of international trade, the Spanish uh, extracted silver from Potosi, so I think it was a couple of, maybe even 300 years, that those silver mines of Potosi made the Spanish rich from mining silver there. And so this is what he's talking about. The mines of Potosi was so ample, the quantity was so ample that when turned into money, it promised to promote new currents of trade, new inventions, and new enterprises and achievements of every description. European states had long been destitute of an adequate measure of value. Okay, well, if you've only got paper money and fiat money at that, you can never have a stable value of a stable measure of value. And a, a lot of times, well, for example, throughout history, salt was the measure of value. <laughs> Uh, tulips were the measure of value in Holland at one point until the, the tulip supply was heavily inflated and the value of tulips went down. You could predict that, right? Uh, everything under the sun was tried because there was a lack of trading medium, such as gold and silver. The English actually had a system of tally tally sticks, which was actually very good. It, it, it stabilized the economy. In other words, the government put a, a tally stick into circulation, kept half the tally stick, it broke it in a certain fashion, and then uh, the the citizen who purchased the tally stick by whatever means, whether trading uh, goats or cattle or wheat or corn, whatever, the uh, the person who had the matching tally stick when it came to the government, could get the full value of that tally stick. 
All right, so because it was limited to those particular tally sticks, somebody, nobody could come along and pretend to create more tally sticks, right? You had to have a matching tally stick. So therefore, you could not inflate tally sticks. That's the issue, inflation versus a steady value. That's the issue here, okay? And But gold and silver have always maintained a steady value. Why? Because as the population of the planet has grown, the mining of silver and gold has grown. And it's kept pace. So there's always been uh, like, uh, like a head value of gold and silver. As the world has been uh, increases in population, more gold and silver have been mined. So that the value of the gold and silver has actually remained fairly steady throughout history. Unless certain entities, be they governments or banksters, mess with the exchange rates. Okay, and that's what the Jews are all about, is messing with the exchange rates. Let's continue. European states had long been destitute of an adequate measure of value. There were but few gold coins in circulation. The silver coins were mostly degraded. The monetary issues were chiefly bullion, I guess it's an early form of the word bullion, and copper coins. Uh, I'm not sure here. Uh, I didn't realize I'd come across this concept again. Bullion. Let me see what this word means. Bullion alloy. Okay. It looks like. Bilan is an alloy of a precious metal, most commonly silver, but also gold, with a majority base metal content such as copper. It is used chiefly for making coins, metals, and token coins, I guess poker chips as well. The word comes from the French bille, which means log, okay? So it's close to the word bullion, but bullion is usually reserved for gold. But, uh, yeah, so it's a precious, an alloy of precious metal, okay? But it's not the precious metal itself. It contains some of the precious metal. And so, because there was not enough of the precious metal, they still started coining it with silver and or gold, okay? So, the entire monetary... Oh, wait a minute. Uh, let me finish this sentence. The monetary issues were chiefly billin and copper coins, whose value depended largely upon government credit, which at that period was much strained. The entire monetary circulation of Europe at the period of the discovery of America did not exceed $2 per capita. $2, that's it. However, the economy flourished because you don't need lots of money. You can break your uh, $2 into Half dollars, quarters, dimes, nickels, pennies, half pennies, quarter pennies. You can always deflate the currency without affecting trade whatsoever. All you have to do is issue it in smaller denominations. A millionth of a penny, <laughs> right? You issue, and it could be you know, as long as it's tied to the actual dollar of gold and silver. Very difficult to uh, de deflate currency. That's that's very difficult. 
because the value of the currency increases, not decreases, and banksters don't like that. Although they have done that deliberately in order to crash an economy. They have definitely done that. Agriculture was degraded to the lowest condition. The peasantry were reduced to the level of animals. Commerce and private credit had folded their wings and shrunk into the Italian ports, whilst manufacturers beyond a few homespun fabrics had practically no existence. Okay, so trade was not flourishing because there really was no medium, you know, a stable medium of exchange. The desire to immediately convert the new supplies of silver into money was irresistible. By the hammer process, an ordinary workman could t- not turn out more than 40 or 50 well-finished silver coins per diem, and a good workman not more than 100. To coin the product of Potosi would have required an army of m- moneyers, as numerous as those whose revolt had cost the Emperor Aurelian 7,000 troops to suppress. Uh, sometimes government has to step in whether it's to increase the currency or deflate the currency. Something more expeditious was wanted than the old steel die, hammer, and file. That's something in the shape of laminating mill and screw coining press was the balancier. was invented in Italy about the year 1547. It appeared in Spain in the... In, in Spain, in the year 1548. Oops. I have to scroll down, not turn the page. Okay. Oh, by the way, I forgot. I want to share this with everybody in the chat room here. Okay. This is from... I have to switch browsers real quick. Okay, this is from Internet Archive. Internet Archive. And, okay, I have to go into Listen Live Now, which I went out of in order to find this article here. So let me open the chat room again. And I'm going to share this article, History of Monetary Crimes. Good evening, JT. Control V. There it is in the chat room, okay? Getting back to Alexander Del Mar. Let me take a quick swig of my uh, silver, (laughs) nano silver cocktail. One of the things that makes gold and silver value is that they have commercial uh, industrial value, okay? They can be turned into jewelry for one thing. They can be value in uh, electromagnetic processes, okay? So they do have intrinsic value, and every uh, item of money needs to have intrinsic value. Paper money does not have intrinsic value, even though there have been attempts to tie it to silver, you know, a uh, silver-backed currency, gold-backed currency. Those types of currencies are much more difficult to inflate because... They usually bear an inscription on there, payable to the bearer on demand in real money, right? Which is, okay, a $5 bill, silver certificate, 
will give the owner of it five literal coins of silver. And the bankster had to make that change, exchange. The, the value of the paper money is its ease of use. But as long as it's tied to actual silver or actual gold in exchange, the bankers had to honor that piece of paper. Right? The Jews did away with that system during the Great Depression. And that they caused the Great Depression to do away with that system. And FDR, their puppet, even took this gold away from the American citizens and gave it to the Jews of London because they had lost so much money on World War I and they needed to recoup their funds in order to control the world again. That is the Rothschilds. Okay, so that's the whole purpose of the Great Depression here in America is to pay off the Jews and give the, the, the Rothschilds and give them their power back. Because as long as they controlled gold, they controlled its value, and they can spend it, to, they can send it or sell it to other countries as needed because, like I said, it always has commercial value. But right now, the Jews are hoarding it as best as they possibly can. But I don't, they don't anticipate there will be a flood of money coming into gold, even though there is a big flourishing gold market and silver market here in America and, all, and other precious metals. It's so small compared to what the, the Jews actually control. They're not even concerned about it. But let's continue. So, something more expeditious was wanted than the old steel die hammer and file. So, they needed a coinage based on gold and silver that was easy to put into circulation. In 1550, some such a machine made its appearance in France. This is the so-called balancier, a country which possessed no Potosi and produced no silver. On March 3rd, 1553, a coin mill, the Lamanoir, was patented by Aubrey Olivier. Another one was claimed as an invention of Antoine Brucher. So the French wanted to get their hands on that silver. <laughs> In July 1553, the king, Henry II of France, authorized the erection of a screw press and laminating mill with which to coin silver testoons or shillings. Now you see here, folks, that the government still controlled the issuance and value of silver, which is where the right... Be because if it's the government and the government is serving the people, not the banksters, then that's who's supposed to issue the currency. The government is supposed to issue the currency. You never give this power to Jew banksters. However, that's what happened with the Federal Reserve Act of 1913. Woodrow Wilson was blackmailed into giving the Jews this power. Let's continue. In March 1554, the first coins in France were made by the new process. In 1561, the mill and press was introduced by Nicholas Briot into England. In 1685, Castain invented a device to stamp the edges of coins and succeeded in turning out as many as 20,000 coins a day by the new process. There are still extant some machine-made or milled coins of Elizabeth, struck according to Haydn in the year 1562. 
Can you imagine what one of those coins is worth today? Never hoard paper, always hoard gold and silver because the paper is going to lose its value. Snelling fixes the date of this event in 1576, but this seems to me to be too late. For according to Martin Folks, Philip Mastral, a Frenchman probably who had brought the newest machine from France, was in 1569 detected in making coins on his own account. Oh no! Is that... Is, is that not allowed? <laughs> that actually happened here in America, in Indiana. A, a group of uh, patriots tried to produce their old, own gold coins, and they were promptly put in jail. Okay, So the coinage is supposed to be done by the government. But the, it doesn't really add to the inflation rate, because who has so much gold and silver that when they issue their own gold coins they can actually affect the value of those coins. Very, very few. So, so this is considered counterfeiting by private individuals. But the Federal Reserve is a counterfeiting operation because it only issues fiat money. Because it only issues fiat money. Okay. There are still extant some machine-made or milled coins of Elizabeth struck, according to Haydn, in the year 1562. So, Philip Mastrail, a Frenchman, probably he who had brought the newest machine from France, was in 1569 detected and making coins on his own account. That's called counterfeiting if a private individual does it. But it's called inflation when a government does it. And for this offense, he was executed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay, no, if you do this offense today, the Federal Reserve will hire you because you're doing such a good job. Yeah, well, come and work, do some counterfeiting for us, don't you know? We'll, we'll pay you handsomely. A circumstance that put an end for a time to the fabrication of coins by machinery in England. On the other hand, Blackie's popular encyclopedia, hmm, I don't think I've heard of that encyclopedia, Blackie's. Blackie's popular encyclopedia states that Mastral's press was not abandoned until 1572. The true date of Marcel's death may possibly be supplied by Fenelon, who states that in September 1574, certain Germans, Hollanders and Frenchmen in England, were detected in forging a million crowns of the coins of France, Spain, and Flanders. And this was done with the connivance of some of Elizabeth's ministers, <laughs> okay? Countries can make economic war against other countries. So vast a number of broad pieces would hardly have been attempted to be struck by hand. And since Mastrell, so far as is known, possessed the only complete coining machinery in England, it seems more than likely, especially when regard is had for Mr. Folk's statement, that Fenelon's account is correct and Mastrell was either the instigator or chief instrument of these nefarious transactions. But if the government does it, it's not nefarious. If banksters do it, nobody even cares. Similar offenses were perpetrated in France. The Marquis de Tavanis assured that, assures rather, us that Salcide, who was executed in 1582, had grown rich from the profits of what he called forgery, 
but what according to the metallic school was really only justifiable private coinage because the forged coins contained more silver than the genuine <laughs> okay so in other words his money is going to outshine the government's money because it's got more silver it is evident that the mill and press was already working in a revolution or working a revolution in the monetary systems of the world so far as it operated to discourage the further issuance of debased coins like those for example of Edward VI its influence was admittedly beneficial but might it not also operate to destroy money altogether by facilitating its reduction to the degraded level and value of the metal of which it was made? We shall see. Now, that's the only way that coins can be inflated, i.e. degraded, by messing with the silver or gold content. For example, when I was in Hungary in the mid-60s as a tourist, all of their coins were made out of nickel, <laughs> right? Probably one of the cheapest metals you can find. They did, had not, they did not have gold and silver coinage. It was nickel and copper and even more cheaper stuff, uh, composites, which are even cheaper than nickel, okay? So anyway, the, uh, the government forces the population to use this stuff as money, which has very little intrinsic value, if any, okay? Therefore, the government can issue as much of this as it is capable of issuing and the people simply have to go for it they have no choice because communism is dictatorship so if the dictator tells you this is money and they debase its value every year by inflation you're just going to have to put up with it but most people don't even realize that it's happening that's the beauty from the devil's point of view of inflation Nobody knows that they're being robbed, that the value of the coins in their pockets or paper money in their pockets is being debased by continuing to print money, continuing to put out this stuff in competition with the coins and paper in your wallet or in your pocket. Very, very few people understand how fiat money works and how fiat money robs you of the value of the money in your pocket and or wallet. Okay, let's continue. A similar reason is advanced by Renoir Chalon for the abandonment of the mill and pit press in France by Henry III. In September 1585, aside from the improbability of such alleged cheapness, the executions of Mastral and Salcide sufficiently prove that the renunciation of the new machine had a graver object. This was to limit the coinage and discourage counterfeiting. But though it was comparatively easy to de detect and drive forgers out of the well-policed states of Europe, it was not so easy to discover and punish them in America. Counterfeit silver coins were reported in circulation and are mentioned in the Spanish-American Monetary Laws of 1535, 1565, and 1595, which contain injunctions to the Spanish viceroys to trace and punish the offenders. Now, if the coins contain the same amount of silver or better than the Spanish doubloon, what's the problem? Well, Spain doesn't like it. 
But nevertheless, it's still good coinage as far as the Americans are concerned. It's better than paper money. In 1603, the Billon coins of Philip III in Spain. So Philip III was debasing the coins of the realm himself. Like those of Henry VIII and Edward VI in England were suddenly doubled in value by royal proclamation. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that uh, just by royal proclamation, a an equivalent coin, let's say, to a Spanish doubloon, would suddenly buy twice what it used to? How do you enforce that? Those who have access to Spanish doubloons, which was actually the most popular coin in the Americas of the time, uh, would retain its value. And you can't just by fiat declare a coin to be twice as valuable today as it was yesterday. It's not that simple, okay? Because it affects the exchange of products. Not all products can be so easily doubled in value as a piece of uh, nickel. The Spanish decree produced great distress and confusion. It was followed in Spain by a virtual suspension of payments in gold and silver coins and a premium on the latter of 40%. So in other words, it increased the value of the gold and silver coins. You cannot proclaim funny money to be double in value from one day to the next. just doesn't work. The government can't enforce that because the exchange rate, the, the true exchange rate, let me just put this out here right now. The true exchange rate is, let, let's say, what is a bushel of wheat worth versus a bushel of corn versus a cow or a horse? These exchange rates tend to be steady over time. Okay? But if you double the coinage by debasing the coinage, then then all of those things will cost twice as much as they used to in terms of the coin. But they will still stay relatively stable vis-a-vis each other. The coinage of the realm, the money of the realm, should reflect this ratio among wheat, corn, horses, and cows. Should reflect that. The only way it could reflect that is by being stable. Therefore, the commodities are stable or relatively stable, and the coinage is relatively stable. But if any one of those commodities goes out of whack, doubles, triples, quadruples, that's going to affect the exchange rate. So let's say in this country we have an excess of beef. Well, the value of beef is going to go down because we have an excess of it. However, vis-a-vis horses, corn, and wheat, those three other commodities will remain stable vis-a-vis each other. Okay, All three of those commodities will buy more beef because beef has, let's say, doubled or tripled in quantity and has been flooded on the market. Okay, Coinage is supposed to reflect how those real commodities retain their value. It's supposed to reflect the given ratio 
of the actual commodities that otherwise would be uh, ex exchanged by barter, okay? So the money should reflect the barter system, but make it much more easier to trade because your barter requires the seller to take all his goods to whoever wants to purchase them in exchange for, let's say, corn or wheat. And then he has to lug that corn or wheat back home. And he, he, can't, he can't use all that corn or wheat. He's got to distribute it to other purchasers for, to, for him to get full value of whatever he traded. This is where the beauty of money comes in when the money is not debased. That's how the economy is supposed to work. That's how money is supposed to work. But rare is the country, rare is the banker who will provide us with stable currency. It's almost unheard of. Stable currency is even rarer than gold or silver. Okay? So this is the point that Alexander Del Mar is trying to make. Okay, so I'm just going to go ahead and flip the page and to see what else I can get in, actually into the next chapter. So you get the point of what what's going on here. So this is the chapter in which Barbara Villiers is introduced. So let me go, uh, what's the page? Okay, I'm on page 19 of the document. In 1645, third year of Louis XIV, all coinage was forbidden except by the new process, billinage it's called here, which now became permanently established in France, whereas in England it was still on trial. Okay, again, from one country to another, values are going to fluctuate. It's just the nature of the animal. Okay. But if the money itself is fluctuating in value, then the economy is going to suffer as a result. As I said, the money should reflect the, uh, the, the barter value of the commodities. commodities. The way that, that those commodities would exchange for each other should be reflected by the coinage before which you can get full value of all four commodities. All right? and actually make it easier to trade them, which would increase the value of all the commodities by having a stable currency. Because it makes exchange much easier, and therefore production will be easier, etc., etc. So stable money, paper money don't hold, as Montrose tells us in the song. Stable money can only be in the form of typically gold and silver. That's why the founding fathers of this country defined a dollar as 371.25 grains of silver. So everything had to be reflected. How much? How many cows can you buy for 371.25 grains of silver? How many bushels of wheat, etc.? Okay. So as long as those commodities trade pretty much the same year after year after year, which they usually do then the money will reflect that stability. If one of those commodities goes out of whack, well, then the, then the coinage will reflect that too. Like I said, the 
the, the coinage should reflect the relative value of these commodities within the country. Now, from one country to another, it's going to be different because America produces much more beef than probably any other country in the world, with the possible exception of Argentina. So, you know, we're talking, you know, the relative value from one country to another is going to change. This is why our Congress, who are very intelligent men, said to regulate the value of the, the, the currency, the, the amount of currency and the value thereof, because when the, the, the government has to make a purchase, let's say, from another country, well, then you have to barter. You're back to barter. Even though you're paying for something with the coinage of the realm, let's say you buy something from France for a bunch of silver, silver dollars, well, then you say, okay, well, how many silver dollars are you willing to accept for 100 tons of beef, right? Well, it has to reflect how much beef there is in that country and what they're willing to accept in exchange. So when you cross borders, you're back to barter, even though you might be using coin of the realm. Let's continue. In that country, political disturbance had for a while postponed definite action on this important subject. England was still on trial, that is, the coinage. In 1651, Pierre Blondeau, a Frenchman, was employed by the government of Oliver Cromwell to strike coins by the mill and screw. Now remember, this is before the creation of the Bank of England, in 1694 and who was the one who set the stage for the creation of the bank of england none other than oliver cromwell because he was hired by dutch jewish bankers to overthrow charles the first and put into power charles the second well it was indirect charles the second came into power indirectly but had not oliver cromwell deposed and chopped the head off charles the first then Charles II would not have possibly even reigned. But let's continue. His work, however, was confined to pattern pieces, which, according to the Penny and the Penny Cyclopedia, were the first ones upon whose edges a lettering was impressed as a safeguard against clipping, the serrated edges not appearing until 1663, still before the Bank of England was created. After some delays, Pierre Blondeau in 1659 got to work systematically. But here again, political events occurred to interrupt the employment of the new process. In 1660, the restoration took place. Blondeau was frightened back to his native land, and the uh, early coins, it's very hard to read here, of Charles II were once more hammered as of old. Okay. The next page introduces our favorite prostitute. <laughs> okay. Barbara Villiers. Page 21. But the time had passed for this ancient process. Milled and pressed coins were being produced in France, Holland, and Spanish America of so much more even weights and such superior workmanship that England, unless content to let the eastern trade slip into the hands of its neighbors, was compelled to adopt the new process 
even though it became necessary to employ foreign artists to superintend the work. Okay? So in order for England to compete with the other countries, they had to start producing their own silver coins and you know, of good quality. Accordingly, Pierre Blondeau was sent for again, and the year 1662 saw him re-employed at the Tower of London, turning out with mill and screw those handsome coins upon which the restored but improvident Charles had already granted a mortgage to his beautiful Barbara Villiers. Okay, okay. Oh, my dear prostitute. I mean, Bar- my dear Barbara, mistress, Barbara, I'll give you a cut <laughs> of the profits. Oh, she had no idea how rich she was going to be. The superior results of machine coining are seen by a single glance at the statistics of the mint. From the restoration in May to the end of the calendar year 1660, the coinage was only 1,683 pounds. In 1661, 23,000 pounds. In 1662, when Blondo's machines were employed, 496,000 pounds. And in 1663, it went down to 330,000 pounds. Here, Blondeau seems to have been dismissed, or else the supplies of bullion ran very low, for in the following three or four years, the coinage did not average more than 50,000 pounds. So the, the, the silver bullion must have been decreasing. In 1664, 44,000 pounds, 1665, blah, blah, blah. I don't think we have to go through all those years. But anyway, we have introduced our favorite prostitute, Barbara Villiers, to whom Charles II had give, promised to give her a cut. He, had, he probably was a, a paper money guy who did not realize how much value he was actually dealing with here. Okay? In the previous chapter... Mention was made of the ancient statutes which, in order to prevent any alteration in the measure of value, prohibited the melting down or exportation of the national coins. Down to Edward III, the statutes against melting related only to silver pennies, half pennies, and farthings. And from Edward III to Richard II, only to pennies and their fractions, and to groats and half groats, the service, no, sorry, the largest silver coins of the period. After Richard II, there was no new statute against melting, although there were several against exportation. The goldsmiths, bankers, and foreign merchants of London, always conspicuous for their unselfish patriotism. <laughs> He's being facetious here. And devotion to the public interest conscrewed, <laughs> conscrewed, yeah, construed these statues so literally to deem themselves at liberty to melt down all the broad pieces of Cromwell and the two Charleses, which had been so carefully minted by Brio and Blondo, and to export the metal, export the metal thus obtained to the Orient. Remember the exchange rate between gold and silver in the Orient guaranteed almost doubling the amount of silver when you sent your gold to the Orient. So you bring all that silver, which is now twice as valuable in England. You can buy a lot more stuff 
than you were able to before simply by the exchange rate. A penal statute in 1662 was enacted to stop this practice, but it was followed so closely by the opposite legislation of 1663 and 1666, presently to be described, that it had no practical results. Okay, so the bankers put an end to the government crackdown on the foreign exchange of gold and silver. As Mr. Davis, a member of Parliament in Elizabeth's reign, had to, had said in reference to the same practice of exportation, quote, the exchange is governed by brokers, and as it pleases them, the exchange must rise and fall. Okay? So the value of money, even though it's gold and silver, the banksters are going to change its value for them to make a profit and not for stability of the coin of the realm, period. That's why the banksters always get a monopoly on the gold and silver coinage to the best of their ability, which was as true in the reign of Charles as of Elizabeth and is as true of the United States today as it was of England in the reign of Charles. Okay, So the banksters are always going to try to control the money supply no matter what, uh, you know, what material it's made out of. Now we're going to get into East India Country, uh, Company in greater detail. Chapter 4, the East India Company. Thus far, the monetary legislation of the 7th... Hard to discern whether it's 7th century or 17th century. Yeah, I think it's it's got to be 17th century. Related to a legal decision and to a mechanical invention by which coins could be manufactured of a uniform weight and size a thing practically impossible by the process of hammering and hand-punching. By the new invention, coins could also be produced cheaply so that small coins of silver, of bilan, which is an alloy, and even of tin and copper, could be manufactured economically, rapidly, and measuredly safe from the arts of forgers. Afterwards, or inflation or counterfeiting. Afterwards, the monetary legislation related to an intrigue which originated with the billionaires, or the goldsmiths or bankers, and their commercial colleagues. Namely, the 215 nobles, knights, aldermen, and merchants trading with the Indies under the title of the East India Company. Okay, now we're going to get into the East India Company in great detail. And I think Alexander Del Mar deals with the subject in greater detail than probably any other author. It was consummated under the auspices of the king's mistress, Barbara Villiers. Okay. How many lords did she have to sleep with to accomplish this? How many lords, uh, brokers, uh, coin masters, silversmiths, and goldsmiths did she have to sleep with to accomplish this? Here you see the connection between prostitution and money. Of course, it goes all the way back to Egypt when the temples, uh, the priestly temples of Egypt serviced the, uh, the caravans with prostitutes and the money they made because essentially the temple... A pagan temple was nothing but a house of prostitution, and the gold and silver they collected 
because the banksters then were pimps and they were pimping out the prostitutes and they were making good money doing it. And so eventually the vaults in the basement of the temple became filled with gold and silver and other precious commodities that uh, you know, became known as money. Okay, But nevertheless, the services of prostitutes have always been to help the banksters. This is why Mystery Babylon in the book of Revelation, chapters 18, 19, and 20, are referred to as the great whore. The great whore. And for other reasons as well, of course, because whenever the banksters take over a country, everybody who accepts their money uh, and wants to deal with the bankers becomes a whore for the bankers. That's just the way it works. Okay. So let's continue. By the new invention, coins could also be produced cheaply so that small coins of silver, blah, blah, blah. It was consummated under the auspices of the king's mistress, Barbara Villiers, Countess of Castlemaine, and afterwards Duchess of Cleveland. Finally, it fell altogether under the influence of the all-absorbing East India Company. Okay, but Barbara Villiers, the great whore of Charles II, was the one in charge of making all the deals, obviously behind the scenes, that finally led to the creation of the Jewish East India Company. By the charter granted to the East India Company December 31, 1600, it was permitted to export foreign coin or bullion to the amount of 30,000 pounds a year upon condition that the company imported with, within six months after the completion of every voyage, except the first one, the same quantity of foreign coin and bullion that it had exported. So in other words, the, the British government wanted to make sure that they don't lose coinage. However, the East India Company was making profits from the exchange rates, the different exchange rates between England and India, and probably other countries as well, where the exchange rates differed. So you, you couldn't buy, let's say it was two to one, let's just as an example, two to one in England, silver to gold. And so if you can send your gold to India where it's 10 to one, your one piece of gold now can buy five times as much in England as it would with English silver, okay? You see how this process works? That's money lenders. That's money changers. What was the, what were those Jews in the New Testament referred to as money changers? Money changers. They were using this trick already in the days of Yahshua Messiah, those dirty rats. They were already doing that in those days. Because why? They were, they were exchanging bullion and other coin with the Babylonian bankers of the day. And that's where the Babylonian Talmud comes from. So this, this information about money and how bankers manipulate the value of money throughout history, it's not taught in your college class, <laughs> classroom, folks. There are very, very few books on the subject. And the stuff, and this is actually fairly dry reading, except for the fact that the, the bankers always employ assassination, 
uh, chopping kings' heads off and the services of prostitutes to get their way. Blackmail and murder. Blackmail and murder. You're never going to read anything like this in a college textbook. Never. Okay, so now the Jews are gaining more and more control over Britain through the manipulation of coinage. It may here be stated that from the year 1600, the seniorage on silver coins levied by Elizabeth was two shillings on 62 shillings. The coinage value of the pound weight of a standard of, of standard silver. By James I, two shillings and sixpence. By Charles I and the Commonwealth, it was two shillings. And by Charles II, until 1607, it was two shillings to the crown and two pence to Barbara Villiers. <laughs> Can you imagine, folks? Paying your mistress such a huge percentage of the value of the shillings to a prostitute. She could have become a banker in her own right. But if she had done that, the Jews would have bumped her off and grabbed all all the pence that she had. She was so rich that, I don't know if it's in this book or not, she was so rich that she would spend thousands gambling in the casinos and didn't think twice about it. The privileges granted in 1600 to the East India Company were so lucrative that the restrictions which accompanied them had not yet produced dissatisfaction. The trade in general, commodities was slow, hazardous, and comparatively small. After 1635, the company was handicapped by the charter granted to Sir William Corton, the son of a thrifty tailor, (laughs) and others authorizing them to trade with those parts of India which the company had neglected. Okay, so the Jews actually had competition from the son of a tailor. (laughs) Okay, I don't see that happening ever again. I don't see that happening ever again. All right, folks, this is getting more juicy as we go along. The uh, the shenanigans and the hair splitting of the major historians, the -the run-of-the-mill, you know, textbook historians employed by the colleges and universities of the world is garbage. They will not tell you these things. They will never talk about the East India Company. They will never talk about the blackmail and murder involved in creating national banks around the world. They will not tell you about this at all. So, But we will tell you here at Eurofolk Radio because intrigue, murder, prostitution, blackmail, threats, arm twisting are run of the mill for these bankers. And you would never know it by going to college. Thanks for listening. Praise Yahweh. Pass the ammunition. And here's that song about paper money again. (laughs) Here we go. Take care, everybody. Okay. Play.
Play a game of a rich boy I buy everything 